To study morality is to study whether one's actions, intentions, and choices are right or wrong. Or said another way, it's about figuring out how to behave based on standards of propriety and impropriety. Within that same realm of inquiry, the study of ethics is figuring out how one might formalize, systematize, defend, and communicate rightness and wrongness. So if morality is sussing out what right and wrong is, ethics is determining how we apply that knowledge of right and wrong on a personal and a societal level. Under the umbrella category of ethics, there are three main subcategories. Metaethics is the study of morality itself, asking questions about how we know what is right and wrong in the first place, and what, if any, meaning our moral decisions might have in an absolute sense. Normative ethics asks how we might apply what we learn about morality and what it means practically to behave morally. And applied ethics asks what obligations we might have as people and as members of societies when it comes to our behaviors within different ethical spaces. So it's figuring out, for instance, how ethics apply in the world of biology versus the ethics that exist within the world of economics, and how those differ, how they intermingle, and what it means for us and how we behave. There's a broader term that comes to us from a similar theoretical space, axiology, which refers to the study of value as a whole. So all philosophical quandaries that tie back to value in some way, which is most of them, including anything we might ask about morality and ethics, those topics fit under the even larger umbrella topic of axiology. Axiology emerged alongside a period of governmental collapse and re-emergence between the 5th and 6th centuries in Greece. Well-known historical philosophers like Socrates benefited from that development as it established a framework for thinking beyond the limits of a central authority. The government says this, the religious leaders say that, but we are looking at a space above and behind both of those systems. Philosophical thinking, because of its broader axiological focus on values in general, allowed these thinkers to ponder issues from angles that could then feed back into the government and the faith, rather than being defined and at times stifled by either one. In other words, these thinkers were able to analyze concepts like rightness and wrongness without feeling compelled to color within the lines of a pre-existing dominant philosophy. The government could tell them something was right or wrong, and they could say, is it though? Now that said, being capable of pondering and arguing things doesn't necessarily mean that those things are any more concrete or correct in an absolute sense than anything else. If Socrates had been born into a civilization that regularly practiced human sacrifice, chances are good that his perspective on a great many things, including human sacrifice, would be different by default he would have approached such issues from a different default angle. The same is true for any of us. The things we consider to be obviously right and wrong are in some ways just accidents of history, and could very easily have gone in a different direction. Even the most seemingly evident philosophical truths, then, may only be obvious to us, coming from the historical context we come from, having lived the lives that we have lived, having been exposed to the ancestral philosophical ideas to which we have been exposed. There have been attempts 
to remedy this looseness at times throughout history. But the results have not been too successful, at least not successful according to the standards of those making the attempts. A philosopher named Robert Hartman created what became known as the science of value, which posited that we might be able to symbolize morals using mathematical functions, which would in turn allow us to demonstrate right and wrong using formal and symbolic logic, variables and equations, and things of that nature, like you might see on a blackboard in the office of a mathematician. The broader world of value theory, though, also includes work by sociologists like Max Weber, historical materialists like Karl Marx, ecologists like H.T. Odom, and objectivists like Ayn Rand. Values, then, and more formally, ethics and morality, are complex and varied. And no matter how we try to lock them down, concretize them into something we can formalize into universal commandments, they continue to elude us, to defy precise symbology, and to evolve and iterate over time, even within a single generation. What I want to talk about today is a recent attempted application of formalized ethics to a very serious realm of inquiry, and I'll talk about how and why that attempt failed but also why it probably wasn't meant to succeed, at least in the way one might think, in the first place. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from Vox, and it's entitled Google Cancels AI Ethics Board in Response to Outcry. An ethics board is generally a group of people asked by a government, an organization, or a company to come in and present different perspectives on a topic that's considered to be in some way complex, important, and often controversial. There are ethics boards in all sorts of companies, filled with all sorts of people, so the creation of this board was not unto itself unusual. But a few of the decisions that Google made in stocking it with experts were, in the eyes of some, a little bit questionable. But before we get into that, let's talk for a moment about what this board was meant to help Google accomplish. This ethics board, officially called the Advanced Technology External Advisory Council, or ATEAC, was founded to help guide Google's actions related to artificial intelligence, specifically to guide the, quote, responsible development of AI, end quote, at Google. This board would have eight members, and those members would meet four times in 2019, at each meeting discussing topics of considerable importance in this space, ranging from how AI can enable and empower authoritarian states, how AI-amplified algorithms can produce disparate outcomes, can stack the deck in some people's favor and against others, and whether and how Google should and could be involved with the many possible military applications of AI, among other considerations of that nature. All of which seems like a pretty good idea, right? I've spoken about AI and the myriad concerns we rightly have about it in terms of how it is built and utilized and regulated and so on on past episodes, and Google in particular as one of the world's biggest companies and, importantly, one of the world's biggest investors in AI research and development, it's especially vital that they get their ducks in a row when it comes to the ethics of building and implementing artificial intelligence technologies. Unfortunately for Google, criticisms of this board began pretty much as soon as they announced it. 
The first crack in the board's foundation stemmed from the inclusion of a controversial figure on the board. K. Coles James is the president of the Heritage Foundation, a public policy-focused right-wing think tank that has had massive influence on American politics since the mid-40s when it was founded. They helped develop and implement the Reagan Doctrine foreign policy initiatives. They pushed for Operation Desert Storm during George H.W. Bush's administration. They opposed and halted certain types of welfare reform during Bill Clinton's administration. And they played significant roles in guiding and amplifying the messages of both conservative Tea Partiers and of Donald Trump's administration, particularly his transition team. They kind of stacked the employment deck with their people getting Scott Pruitt, Betsy DeVos, Mick Mulvaney, Rick Perry, Jim DeMint, and Jeff Sessions into their Trump administration positions, among many others. Most relevant to this conversation, though, the Heritage Foundation and K. Coles James in particular have been pointedly and consistently anti-LGBTQ, and even more specifically and vociferously anti-transgender in their words and in their actions. They've also been very anti-immigrant and kind of anti-anyone who is not white, Protestant, Christian, born in the United States, and English-speaking. They've also presented many arguments and policies that imply or say outright that they don't believe in the science behind climate change legislation. A group calling itself Googlers Against Transphobia and Hate published an essay about why they were calling for James's removal from this board, providing evidence for the aforementioned antiness of so many of her positions, while also listing instances where artificial intelligence of some kind has been used to exclude certain groups, including trans people, not recognizing more feminine voices when compared to more masculine voices, ignoring or misidentifying women of color, increasing police surveillance and harassment of certain groups, profiling immigrants in a privacy-invading manner, and automating weapons, which would potentially, almost implicitly, also mean automating killing. This essay included a petition, which was signed by thousands of Google employees. Google's defense for the inclusion of James on the panel was that they wanted to ensure it included, quote, diversity of thought, end quote implying that having someone with her political and ideological perspective would round out the perspectives of other members on the panel. James was not the only member of this ethics board to receive the online protest treatment, however. Diane Gibbons, the CEO of a drone company called Trumbull Unmanned, was also met with skepticism by a large number of Google employees, especially after the firm's recent row with company higher-ups over Project Maven, which is a drone-related imaging project meant to use artificial intelligence to allow combat drones to operate independently of human handlers. Google leadership said they stepped aside from that sort of thing after the Department of Defense contract lapsed. And that, in any case, it wasn't a weapons-related thing that they were doing. It was just image processing stuff. But creepily, Google's work on Project Maven is apparently exempt from the Freedom of Information Act. So the extent of their work and what came of it, if anything, remains beyond public knowledge or scrutiny at this point. So even though the protests of Google employees got that project off the docket, we do not know the extent of what happened with that project and if it potentially continues in some shape within Google. 
We also don't know what other projects of this sort might be under development currently, and whether or not they will be up for working on them in the future. Part of the creation of this board was to, ostensibly at least, figure out if it was ethically legitimate, according to Google's sense of ethics, to work on imaging projects if they knew that these projects might be used to help robots kill people. Gibbons's company is very focused on military applications for drones, but the real issue here seems to be less about her and her company specifically, and more about Google's seeming tone deafness in including someone from a military drone company so soon after having that big, very public to-do over Project Maven. And some Google employees desire not to be involved with such things even a little bit, even adjacently. And there was one more, small but relevant, I think, point raised about this board, and that was how the board was run. Namely, the board members would not be paid, which in practice filters those who can be on it, because someone who is not wealthy would be less likely to be able to take the time to be on it, which means the economic perspectives being represented are severely limited to people who are of high financial means. This issue wasn't the top one mentioned by those unhappy with how it was all set up, but it was brought up when the dominoes started to fall, and as board members started to quit, and that process hit an inflection point just days after the board was announced, when Professor of Information Technology and Public Policy Alessandro Acquisti announced that he would be declining the invitation to join the panel. That public declination happened a few days after another panel member, Joanna Bryson, an associate professor of artificial intelligence, policy, and ethics, indicated that she would be staying on the board, but that she was less concerned with James from the Heritage Foundation's inclusion because she knew, quote, worse about one of the other people, end quote. Both of these statements were published on Twitter, and other board members experienced a torrent of confrontations and sharp questions on the network as well with users asking them how they can justify being a part of a board that has so many issues, has people that they consider to be horrible as core components of it, and so on. So that's the main story here. Google wanted to create an ethics board to help inform its actions in the world of artificial intelligence. It set up and stocked the board in a way that angered a lot of people, and that board collapsed a week after it was announced. Google's official statement on the matter appended to their original announcement about its creation, says the following, quote, It's become clear that in the current environment, ATEAC cannot function as we wanted, so we're ending the council and going back to the drawing board. We'll continue to be responsible in our work on the important issues that AI raises, and we'll find different ways of getting outside opinions on these topics, end quote. Now, all that established, let's talk about the context surrounding this story, which is to me very interesting as it adds depth and nuance to what might otherwise seem to be an open and closed case of a corporation being ethically negligent in how they established an ethics committee, which is a superficial reading of this story that I do not personally think matches what really happened, at least not entirely. First, I think it's important to address the implied idea that some perspectives are legitimate and others are not in a setting like this one. What I'm referring to specifically here is the backlash against Kay Coles-James of the Heritage Foundation. 
that conservative think tank that has been so influential over the years. And the idea that, because like many people who come from the further right side of politics these days here in the United States, she has some ideas about certain groups of people that many people, including some people who are otherwise more conservative-leaning, find to be backwards and or offensive. Now, I should mention, to establish my bias up front here, that I personally think that ideologies predicated on diminishing another group or groups due to their skin color or sexual orientation or gender identity or where they were born or anything else are indeed suffering from tunnel vision and rigid thinking. There are a lot of reasons that a lot of different people believe these things, and I understand that, but that doesn't mean that I have to agree with them or be happy when those people with those ideas take control of our systems and formalize their, in my mind, very limiting and morally incorrect ideologies into law. I do wonder, though, at what point my preference here becomes something that I don't intend it to be. Would I be happy, for instance, living in a world in which people who have firm beliefs against the LGBTQ community are forced to shut up, to never speak their minds? Some visceral part of me wants to say yes, but a more rational part acknowledges that such a reality would not be a democracy. It would be some kind of authoritarian state. An authoritarian state predicated on my ideals, maybe. One that serves me, at least superficially. But does that make it any better? An authoritarian regime that supports me and my ideas but shuts down any other ideas, those I disagree with, could just as easily flip around and shut me up, amplify my ideological opposition tomorrow. It could also leave other ideas that I harbor, which I today think are correct but someday could realize are incorrect or incomplete. It could leave those ideas unchallenged because this system would kill off or outlaw the presentation and sharing of any ideas that do not fit within my existing singular perspective. So when I ask if this is the right approach, to ban people outright for their beliefs, even when I find their beliefs to be unappealing or even abhorrent, that's what I'm asking. I wonder if I might accidentally contribute to the destruction of free thought and democracy, unintentionally, with the best of intentions, if I'm not careful. Of course, I could also see how my gray area perception of this situation might be different if it was me or a group that I was a part of being targeted by that particular person. I am left-handed, and if this woman was vehemently anti-Southpaw, seeing me as someone less than human, that very well might tilt the matter in a different direction, seeing as how it would become something closer to an existential issue for me. It may be that I find it relatively easy to step back and consider the bigger picture here in terms of authoritarianism over democracy because it is less of an existential issue for me. This person, in this case, who does her best to legislate these sorts of ideas is not targeting me directly, and that might make it easier for me to take this particular perspective. This is unfortunately frequently the case when it comes to issues like this. There are no perfect solutions or always right answers, and even the more right for this particular moment answers often come steeped in downsides, whether immediate or future, potential or concrete. So I bring this issue up not because I have an answer or instruction to provide on how to behave with it, but because it is complex and tricky, and becomes even more so if you allow yourself to flip the script and imagine that it was you and your ideas being dismissed and excluded and even outlawed, 
Or, contrarily, to flip things around and imagine that it was you being targeted by those ideas, those ideologies that might be allowed to guide an ethics board for a technology company working on a set of very powerful tools that could very well shape the future in many fundamental ways. So this is not a simple clean-cut situation, even though it may seem to be upon first impression. A second point of context that I think is important to consider here is why this board was created to begin with. Artificial intelligence is a simple name for a broad and varied collection of techniques and technologies, but many of these tools have become fundamental to modern society, including those that we use every single day in our smartphones and apps all across the internet, and in our economic systems, our security and surveillance tech, our government, and in our military hardware. AI technology, then, is not just any technology. It is vital, potentially at least, in the same way that electricity has become vital. And this could turn out to be hyperbole, but there's a chance that it could prove to be even more vital than electricity in some ways, because of how bias can be implemented into AI without those of us on the outside realizing it. So that bias could be baked in at a foundational level, influencing everything that happens after, and the future could be adjusted as a consequence of that bias, for negative or positive or, more likely, for negative for some and positive for others. That is kind of a big deal, and it's part of why it's a very, very good idea to get a firm grip on how these technologies should be used, what kind of oversight we should have over the implementation, which regulations should be in place, from kill switches to taxes, and how we might benefit from all the potential AI upsides without succumbing to their many possible downsides. It's also important, on a more simplistic level, for Google to get this under control for their own sake. Google works with these kinds of technologies in pretty much everything that they do these days, and that means they have a lot of opportunity to screw up in big ways and in tiny ways that may be nothing, but which could then later snowball into something massive. That means there are very good reasons for them to get fail-safes into place, but also to sort things out as much as possible ahead of time rather than struggling to figure it out along the way. And that sorting, that figuring it out, will almost certainly involve a whole lot of just not doing certain things to begin with. Certain types of projects, certain types of AI. Just avoiding wholesale some things entirely. That said, it's possible that even if Google doesn't work with the U.S. Department of Defense on automated killer drone technologies, that some other company will. And we already know that that's the case, actually, despite the fact that we don't know all that we might want to know about this program and others like it out here in the non-military, non-classified world. Other companies have already announced their involvement, and we can make educated guesses about what roles they are probably playing in that space. It's also possible, as is often claimed by folks in the cybersecurity and military worlds, that if we do not do some of these things, someone else will. This is a classic game theory concern, which leaves all of us at all times treating each other like enemies, even in situations where we need not do so, because there is a chance that the other person is thinking the same thing. If we don't, they might. Therefore, we logically should behave as if they will, and as if they believe we will. And unfortunately, that's kind of the world that we live in. And if we do not build the automated killer drones, chances are good that someone else will or someone else already has, to some degree of success or another, because they believe that we will. But that doesn't mean that Google, or any other company with such an ethics board, wants to be the ones to have built it. 
We all know that nuclear weapons were developed, but that doesn't mean that you want to learn that you, working your day-to-day job, contributed to the manufacture of one of the bombs that were dropped on Japan at the end of World War II. I mean, maybe it wouldn't matter to you, but maybe it would matter to you a great deal. That's the kind of question that we're dealing with here. And I would argue that these are important questions to be asking ourselves en masse, especially as more of our technologies and tools are tied together, and more of our efforts, because of those interactions, stand a better chance of either directly or indirectly contributing to something that we would not condone or choose to be involved with if given the choice. It's arguably impossible to extract any particular job or career or day-to-day utility from the broader collection of interconnected systems that fuel all of the military action that takes place around the world. We are already, every single one of us, part of that system in some way, even if just adjacently. This is a question, then, of how close we want our work and ourselves to be to that end result. The third contextual element that I want to mention here is the public relations facet of this story. And this is an angle that doesn't just include Google, it includes most tech companies. And the idea here is that by creating an ethics board of this kind, Google is able to claim a public relations victory, showing themselves to be the caring, philosophically pure company that most of us wanted them to be. The company that back in the day made Do No Evil part of their company charter. Today, many years later, of course, that line has disappeared from the charter, and they've done plenty of things that someone somewhere could consider to be morally repugnant, if not probably truly evil. But by putting together this kind of board, and at least going through the motions as some kind of internal struggle over these sorts of issues, they're able to help us revisit that sense that we used to have, that they are at least thinking things through, and not taking their immense power and influence for granted. They can even be trusted, perhaps, at least a bit more than the other guys in the world of tech. This, unfortunately, though, is probably mostly just perception. Ethics boards are a tried-and-true way for corporations, within the tech world and in other spaces, to foist responsibility for difficult decisions on other outside personalities and entities, and to get press credit for doing so. If Google wants to do business with the Department of Defense to build killer drone software, this sort of board allows them to say, hey, this isn't really our field, let's toss it to the experts, and then take what the board says and do what they intended to do anyway, which allows them to get away with it while also making the case that there were moral experts, nearly infallible intelligences involved in the decision-making process. It's not management who you should hate, but those ethics board members who did not make a stronger case or who made a case that you did not agree with. And one last angle of this story, which is perhaps the most fascinating to me, at least, and which is also widely applicable to the tech world right now, is that ethics boards are possibly being used to stave off regulation. Now, here's how this works. The government takes note of bad behavior on the part of members of a certain industry. It doesn't matter if it's fossil fuels or cigarettes or ad-based social networks, they have all been known to use similar strategies. Those companies bow and scrape and tell the government that they will take care of it, but they don't. Things get worse. The government is increasingly pissed off, and the legal posturing and lobbying efforts of the corporations help keep anything concrete from happening for a while. 
but eventually it comes to a head. A group of politicians want to make an example of them, or the abuses become too extreme to ignore any longer. And those officials make it clear that something has to change, or else. These companies, then, set up an ethics board. Some kind of oversight committee with ostensible moral credibility that will help them stop doing bad things. You say we can't be trusted, but these people can, is the message being sent to those government regulators. Don't even worry about it, we've got this. We see that we were wrong, and we are now listening to these folks who will tell us how to do it better. The ethics boards, though, almost never have any real power. Yes, they put on a real show, they are set in front of the cameras, their credentials are widely disseminated and bragged about, they are usually very credible people, but their decisions are not locked in. They do not have any enforcement capabilities. And because their decisions have no teeth, that means that if they say something the higher-ups in those companies don't want to hear, well, they just ignore them. They can say, we listened to the experts and it didn't work out. The company still gets credit for the PR circus around the creation of the ethics board, and their public perception changes as a consequence, at least for a time. That would seem to be what happened here as well. Based on post-dissolution analysis of this Google AI ethics board and the company's apparent intended use for it, there didn't seem to be any other reason for them to have set it up the way that they did unless we consider that the point might have been just to have a board, not to have the board serve any real advisory purpose. The point was to have it there, kind of as a human shield, in case Googlers got uncomfortable with anything the company was doing and wanted to aim blame at someone above their pay scale. It also allowed them to tell the government that they were getting their act together, taking things very seriously, because the experts were on hand and an official board was taking part in the decision-making process from that day forward. Now, I say that all of this seems to be the case, because there's no way to know that for certain. It would be unfair and cynical to claim this framing of things with any degree of certainty, and it is almost certainly more fair and accurate to say that this was potentially one of multiple rationales for the creation of this board and the shape that it took. It's likely that some of the people, perhaps all of them involved, had truly moral ambitions beyond the mere perpetuation and protection of the company in a regulatory sense when they were putting this board together. Which is good, if true, because it truly is an important discussion to be having, whatever the venue, whatever the excuse to have it. It's also important to have someone, some group of experts, talking about these things. And ideally, in a space where those experts actually have some power some ability to influence what happens next. Because unfortunately, the only focus of power capable of equaling that wielded by these big tech companies these days is the government. And I don't know if you've ever watched a congressional hearing about technology, but, well, it would be hilarious if it wasn't so sad. Many of the people running the United States have never sent an email before. And yet we live in a world in which emails are dinosaur-like in their antiquity, but almost oxygen-like in their ubiquity. And they don't even understand that on a practical level. Many of the people who wield regulatory powers do not know what they are dealing with when it comes to modern technology. And so, yeah, the idea of an ethics board of some kind is a really good one. Hopefully, though, at some point, we will see this kind of scheme set up in such a way that it can truly steer the discussion and the shape regulation takes, rather than serving, at least partially, 
as a showpiece and PR mechanism for the folks who are actually steering the ship. Until and unless that happens, many such panels, whether they last a week or a decade, will contribute far less than advertised to the world, ethically or otherwise. TV show that I would like to recommend today is one that's actually been out for a little while, but the second season just started the other day. So it's something that there is a sufficient enough out there to binge if you choose to do so, but you can also follow along with that second season as it develops, as I will be. And that show is called Killing Eve, and it's a truly fascinating show. The characters are amazing, the acting is incredible, the writing is very, very good. And part of what's so fascinating about it to me is they manage to avoid almost completely any typical character archetype. All of the characters on this show are different. They're distorted in some meaningful way from the types of characters that you usually see on a show. And that's important because this is a common type of show. It's a serial killer, sort of, an assassin, sort of, being pursued by an officer of the law. But the entanglement between these two characters and the relationships between other characters in the show and the characters themselves are all so truly unique that it's a really interesting and beautiful thing. That then causes you to look at other shows and realize, wow, just how many tropes there are. How many shows are just replications of other shows with a slightly different coat of paint. So if that sounds interesting to you, if you're keen to find something new to watch, if you're interested in being exposed to some brand new archetypes that you probably haven't seen before, consider checking out Killing Eve on whichever streaming service happens to carry it in your particular region. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com, and you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsnotethings.com. You can find out about the speaking tour that I'm currently on at becomingtour.com, and you can find my advice column about life at somethoughtsaboutliving.com. Feel free to reach out on social media. I am at Colin is my name. Thank you so very much for listening. I am Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week. Thank you.